We're going to read this morning from Judges chapter 11. Let's hear the word of God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be our witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead And the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the Ammonites answered the messengers from Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peacefully. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, nor for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Zion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Zion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jaaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord the God of Israel gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. 
So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before the people of his, his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And although the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go up to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and all the cities that are in the banks of the Ammon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. When the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and, and ESV says, or, is an alternative, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aroar to the neighborhood of Minnath, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamin with great blow. So the Amorites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came home to, to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your, on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jepheth, Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, as we've seen in the order of the book of Judges, Israel has rebelled against God, and God is confronting Israel with its behavior. We always want to know what God will, will do to them. They, they cry out to Him. They, their things are really in a tough way. They cry out to Him. And what will God do? Well, one thing we know about God, the God of the Bible, is that He is immutable. That is, He is unchanging and unchangeable. In Numbers chapter 23, he says that, it says this, God is not human that He should change His mind or repent. Has He said? Will He not do it? Anything He says He'll do, He will do. He's true to His Word. And He never changes His mind. So that's the Bible's teaching. And there's some bright spark here in the congregation who will probably say, well, there are other verses that seem to say that he does change his mind. And uh, superficially, that's true. I, I'd like you, if you're thinking that, to go and revisit those verses, and you will find out that they, paradoxically, are saying the same things. God is unchanging and unchangeable in the threats he makes to the wicked. He will by no means clear the guilty. That's a reality. God is unchanging and unchangeable in that principle. But the same God has made clear that for those who repent, for those who confess their sins, He will clear the guilty. He will pardon sins. He will restore fellowship. He never changes His mind. He has said something for the wicked who are unrepentant, something for the wicked who are repentant, and He will accomplish His will. His will remains one will, and He'll accomplish what He has said He will do. He's always opposed to the wicked, but He always is gracious to those who admit their sin, confess it, to those He pardons. So we've seen this then. God responds to Israel yet again in, in their plight. And at the end of chapter 10, we find that the Lord could not bear to look on the sufferings of His people any longer. He feels sorry about them. He feels sorry for their circumstances, for the mess they've gotten themselves into. And so He acts on their behalf. Now, the, the story really falls into three parts. And as we read the story here in chapter 11 of Judges, you should have Jesus on your mind. All of these stories of saviors and judges in the Bible are given to us in order that we might reflect on who Jesus is. It was Jesus who said that everything in the Scriptures, everything in the Scriptures talks about him. So let's see what the Scripture is teaching us about Jesus. First of all, Jesus, Je uh, Jephthah, is like Jesus by circumstance. In other words, both Jephthah and Jesus were regarded as being unqualified by Israel. 
You saw that in the story as it unfolds. Uh, we have the story of Gilead. You know that Gilead is both a place and it's also a person's name. Here, the person named Gilead is, is actually the father of Jephthah, uh, who has had him through by a prostitute. So Gilead is a place and a person. And we're told at the end of the story in chapter 12, verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel for six years. So he is one of the judges of Israel. Not only that, but his name appears in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith, the heroes of the hall of faith. And you might wonder after just having read the story there how someone like him gets to be in the hall of faith and be immortalized there. I mean, look at the story. Let's look at the, the character. First of all, he, he's socially disadvantaged. For although his father is named after the tribe and after the homeland, Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. She had no status in Israel. His half-brothers reject him on account of his illegitimate birth. They expel him from the family home and they deny him any part in the family inheritance. Jephthah has to flee. He flees to Tob. The word Tob means good. He flees to the land of Tob. That's the good lands. So if you think of the bad lands out west, which I've been in the verge of and seen, the bad lands where the outlaws used to go, these are the good lands, at least they're good for the outlaws, as a place to go and find refuge. So this man, Jephthah, right at the very beginning, knows what it is to be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Rejected by his wider family, rejected from his home, rejected from his inheritance. He knows what Jesus feels like when in Isaiah 53 we're told that the Savior will be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, when it calls him despised and rejected, is not only pointing forward to the Savior when he comes, it's pointing backwards to those who have already trodden the path and themselves have been despised and rejected in anticipation of the Savior who is to come. And Jephthah is one of those people. Jephthah is called to be God's instrument of salvation for Israel. Jesus is called to be the instrument of eternal salvation for the world. So Jesus was despised and rejected. Well, you say, well, Jephthah's, Jephthah was, was born by a prostitute. His was a, a, a birth outside of marriage. It was, that was dodgy right there. Well, then you go to the Gospels. You go to the Gospels. Look at the interaction of Jesus with the people of Nazareth. And you notice the times in which Jesus is called by the people in Nazareth where he lived. Mary's boy. Mary's boy. Nod, nod. Wink, wink. We don't know where he's from. We don't know where he's from. The insinuation something questionable about where he comes from. 
They didn't know the story of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her submission to the will of God and the angel and, and of what God had miraculously done in conceiving the Christ child in her womb. Yes, Jesus does know a bit of what Jephthah is going through here. And they, they share this, this circumstance. And Jephthah attracts to himself these people, just as Jesus will. He attracts to himself these people, displaced persons, people who didn't fit in, people like himself, perhaps, who'd been expelled for, for whatever reason. Uh, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking of these men as robbers or outlaws or brigands. These are just people who were not wanted anywhere else, and they find among themselves in that group they find friendship. They find a place to belong. They were lacking social interactions with people. They didn't have property or status. But in, with Jephthah in the good lands, they find a home. And what strikes us is that Jephthah is re- rejected by the people just as Yahweh, God, is rejected by Israel. You, you see that in the way that he reacts to, to them when, when they come to ask him to lead them. He says, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? God had said something to Israel similar to that when they come asking him, so why are you coming to me now? Didn't you reject me? Didn't you go after other gods? Didn't you seek other gods and, and displace me? Jephthah feels a little bit what God feels like. And, and if you look at Yahweh's reply back in chapter 10, verses 11 to 14, and you compare it with Jephthah's <coughs> reply in chapter 11, <coughs> excuse me, verse 7, you'll see that both of them, Yahweh and Jephthah, both believe that they're being used by Israel. You're only calling on me, God says, so that I'll save you rescue. You're only calling on me, Jephthah says, because I'll save you and rescue you. He's entering into the feelings of Yahweh. When we look at the parallels then with Jesus, we see the same principle at work in Jephthah's life as we find in Jesus' life. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first, Jesus said. A servant is not above his Lord. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well. The servant of God may very well expect the same kind of treatment from God's own people that God receives from his people. And in the end, as we did in John's Gospel, chapter 1, Jesus came to his own place, and his own people did not recognize him. Jephthah was being treated as badly as Yahweh was being treated. And as badly as Yahweh saves, that's what Jesus' name means, would be. Now, Richard Rogers, one of the reformers, puts it like this. He says, when we read this account and we see the unjust treatment of Jephthah and his, his people... We need to be aware that we don't despise people in their affliction, that we don't despise people who are different 
or belong to a different group from us, no matter how much we disagree with them, with their attitudes or their, their policies or their beliefs, we, we, we must not despise people who are made in the image of God. Rogers goes on, such people can do us good. Sometimes someone coming in who is utterly different from us, from a totally different background from us, can contribute to the church, to the fellowship, to our lives, something unique, something we need to learn from. And above all, Jesus died for those people. Jesus didn't just die for those who fit in. He didn't just die for those who think they're important. He didn't just die for the people that we like or that who are like us. He died for men and women, boys and girls, all around the world. So Jephthah and Jesus are alike by circumstance. And then secondly, Jephthah is like Jesus by comparison. In verse 1, Jephthah is called mighty warrior. The Hebrew word is gabor. It's the same word used in Isaiah chapter 9 of Jesus, who's called there mighty God. Jephthah is a mighty man. Jesus is the mighty God. And Jephthah begins his work of saving Israel not by fighting, but by speaking. That's what Jesus did. In Jephthah's case, he doesn't immediately declare war like the others, all the other saviors have done so far. He sues for peace. He sends messengers uh, to put the invader on the defensive. He asks him, why have you invaded my land? The Ammonite king answers, I'm just getting back the territory that belongs to me. Since Israel took it away when they returned from Egypt, way back in the day of Moses. And the Ammonite king is quite specific. He outlines the geographical boundaries, the north of the river Arnon, south of the river Jabbok, east of the river Jordan. That is my land, he says. And Jephthah, Jephthah says, no, no, that's my land. And in response to this, Jephthah gives an outline of salvation history. He takes the whole story of Israel, as we've seen it in, in the Pentateuch, right up to this point, and including the book of Joshua, and he outlines what actually happened. He ends by declaring that the only judge and savior, in fact, he is the only judge and savior in this book who even tries to avoid the slaughter of battle by using argument and reason. He reminds the king of the Ammonites, that Israel had courteously asked permission before they passed through the territory of Ammon on their way to the desert and onwards to their land. When the king of Ammon back in the day didn't give permission, they took a wide detour. They went way out into the desert, adding months to their journey in order to stay away from him and come up to territory in the other side of the Ammonite territory. Had they passed through, they had promised that they would stick to the king's road, that they would keep away from the wells and the crops and the vineyards. And Jephthah continues, and he says to the king, he, he, you, 
You presumed that you could defeat Israel. You invaded Israel when she was leaderless. And, and he, he talks theology to this, to this pagan king. Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and all that Yahweh our God dispossessed from before us, that's what we possess. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh gave Israel and his people this land as a divine gift. Why don't you just accept that your God, Chemish, has given you what you have? Now, of course, Jephthah doesn't believe that Shemesh is a real God. He is taunting the king. He's addressing the king as the king of Ammon, whose god was Molech, and the king of Moab, whose god was Chemish. And, and this king had a legitimate right to the tribe of Moab, just as Israel had to Israel. But he's reminding the king, he's reminding the king that Moab was something that was added on to his original kingdom, the Ammon the tribe of Ammon. So Jephthah argues rather from precedent. He goes back to the day when Balak, Balak, the king of Moab, never fought Israel. He never regarded them as enemies. He didn't want them to come through his land because he didn't want them to be too near to him, uh, but he didn't fight them. And then as uh, Davis says, he, he has an argument from silence. He says, if this land... Israel, is indeed yours. And if this land has always been yours, if this land was yours before Israel even came out of Egypt, why, oh why, oh why, in the 300 years since we've been living there, have you never, ever, ever complained? Why have you never invaded before? Why? Because you're making the story up. And in the end, Jephthah leaves it to Yahweh to decide the history. The history of salvation, which should incite gratitude and faith in true Israelites. The whole possession of the land of Israel was absolutely vital for the journey to Jesus, because Jerusalem is where Jesus would die for our sins. And in the end, It's Jephthah who declares that only Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God. Only he is the ultimate judge. Only he has given judgment over to his son who will judge the living and the dead. At the end of verse 27, the Lord, Yahweh, the judge. Jephthah opens his mouth. He speaks the truth to the enemy. Just as Jesus spoke the truth to Satan who is the enemy and who rules the kingdoms of this world. All of them belong to Satan. He is the God of this age. Jesus spoke truth to Satan. Jephthah is like Jesus. By circumstance, by comparison, and then lastly, by contrast. In the Gospels, we find Jesus returning from his encounter with Satan, the God of this age, and his silencing Satan by his word. And he goes in the power of the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit, we're told, to proclaim good news and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jephthah, as he leaves the declaration of this word of God 
to the king of the Ammonites. He goes out in the power of the Spirit in order to follow God's way. He goes to recruit an army. The Lord gives all his enemies into his hands. A resounding, comprehensive victory is fought and won. He has spoken with authority. He's recited the history of salvation. And everything looks good until Jephthah blows it. Listen to what he said to the Lord. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. Now, there's a use of vav here. And this this can be interpreted as it was by the reformers and the rabbis as a disjunctive. Israel will be the Lord. I will give it to the Lord. Or, or I will give it uh, as a as a sacrifice. The rabbis and the reformers take it as a disjunctive. It's not an and, it's an or. Because Israel's very strong on no child sacrifice. Child sacrifice was a no-no in the law of Israel. So the idea of him killing his daughter which is the way this is usually read in modern scholarship, would be out of the question. Now, I have to say that the early church fathers thought that too, so I'm just being fair and balanced, just like some news programs, fair and balanced uh, this morning. But let me say something, first of all, about making vows to God. In Deuteronomy, it says this, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, You shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you shall be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God uh, what you have promised with your mouth. And Jesus said, don't make vows. Just let your yes be yes or no. Just say yes or no, and don't make vows But let's look a bit more closely at this. Miles Van Pelt, who teaches uh, Old Testament uh, at RTS in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, reminds us that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, literal sacrifices and offerings could be used spiritually, or symbolically rather, For example, in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8, Aaron and his sons, the Levites, are symbolically offered to God as a wave offering. Now, a wave offering typically consumed that which was offered completely by fire. Now, Aaron and his sons were not consumed by fire. In Psalm 51, David speaks of a broken and contrite heart being a sacrifice that God 
delights in. In Romans 12, verse 1, the bodies of believers are to be offered as a living sacrifice. We have to go approach this story reminding ourselves that Jephthah, we're told, is under the Spirit's guidance. He is using the language of sacrifice symbolically. Now, I've said that child sacrifice was an abomination. So, what was happening here? What was his daughter to sacrifice in serving the Lord? So, look at the text. Drill down. She, comes, she is the main character at the end of the story. In 1117, we're told she asked for two months' leave of absence in order to lament her virginity. In verse 39, she and her friends weep over her virginity. In verse 39, Jephthah fulfills this vow to the Lord, and the text tells us she had never known a man. Now, all of this implies that his vow was to offer a member of his household, if it was a human who came out, I guess it would have been different if it was the dog or the goat or the pig. But if it was a human who came out, he was going to offer a member of his household to the full-time service of the Lord as a celibate person. In other words, thus leaving behind any prospect of marriage and family. Now, there are other instances of this in the Bible. In Exodus 38, there are the ministering women who ministered in the temple, and they were virgins. You have Hannah offering Samuel to a life of service to God as a celibate priest. You have the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 arguing that celibacy is one of the possibilities of a way of life for the Christian. One of the possibilities. It's neither a command, nor an obligation, but it is a possibility. And Paul thinks it's a good possibility in certain circumstances. I've been around a long time. I know it's not apparent, but I've been around a long time. I've known many people in my life, and I've known many missionaries in my life, and I've known some missionaries who should never, ever have married. They were not suitable for marriage. I think of one guy, great guy, high-energy guy. He, he, he can do like 10 men's work in one day, and he's, he's very artistic, very productive in the work that he does. And uh, I remember a conversation we had. I said to him, you wouldn't be happy married. You really wouldn't be happy married because there's a kind of restraint on your freedom when you're married. There are other things you have to do when you're married. You can't behave and act and live like a single man when you're married. And you have so much vision and energy that I think maybe God wants you to use that. 
in your life. And he's, he's had a happy life. As far as I know, he's had a very happy life and productive life in the kingdom of God. I had an aunt who broke off an engagement to a man she loved because she wanted to go and spend her life in God's service in Argentina. So celibacy is not the most wonderful thing to talk about, but sometimes in the Bible, in history, it has become a way in which a person can devote their life exclusively to the Lord. Now, there's more. Verse 29 suggests that Jephthah's vow was made under the influence of the Spirit. But here's the punchline. In verse 34, we have a very clear link made between the saving of God's people and Jephthah's only child. She was his only begotten child. And the link, very clear link, is made between Israel's salvation and the cost of it. He had prayed, if you do this, I will. The victory and the salvation were really won by the loss by Jephthah and by his daughter. That's the important thing. The only other place where these three words in verse 34 are used in the entire Bible is in the story of Isaac in God's command to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. So here's the big picture. Salvation for you, salvation for the world, is free, free to you at the point at which you receive it. With empty hands, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Salvation is free on delivery to you. You may not be a Christian today, at this very moment, but if you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you say, as it were, with your, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You don't have to do anything, pay anything, sing anything, say anything, sign anything, promise anything. You take it as a gift, freely given to you today. So it's free to you. But it was costly to God. Costly to God. For, for poor Jephthah, it was his foolishness that led to him. God knew what he was doing from all eternity. In fact, he even used Jephthah's foolishness to give you an illustration of what salvation is all about. It's about God, the Father, giving his only begotten Son, from all eternity his only begotten Son, for your salvation. He gave us 
says John's Gospel, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the end, all that this girl was asked to sacrifice was her, her chances of ever having a home and marriage and children. That was costly for her. It cost her a lot. It cost her dad a lot to see that it was his foolishness that put her in that position. It was a mess. But for God, it was not a mess. He had ordained before he even made the universe that he would do this for us. That he would do this for you. Will you receive that gift of salvation? Not just rescue from enemies, but eternal salvation. You can receive it today. Go to this place today, knowing, knowing that one day you're going to see God. Knowing that your past has been forgiven. Knowing that you have eternal life. Knowing with absolute certainty. Why? Because it's all been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would pour your Spirit out upon us today and that you would maybe reach into the hearts of somebody who's struggling with, with their life options or wondering whether there is a God, wondering whether what they've done in the past perhaps can ever be forgiven, the mistakes they've made. Well, you obviously forgave Jephthah for his foolishness, though he had to live with the consequences, and so did his daughter. But we thank you that in the, in the picture of his only begotten daughter, we are pointed to your only begotten son and the price he freely, gladly paid for us and our salvation. Amen.